Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 65, produced 11 December 2019. Are you, like me, one of millions of Americans who consider themselves Scots-Irish, a person with both Scottish and Irish heritage? If your answer is yes, then odds are you are a descendant of an ethnic group known as the Ulster Scots, lowland Scots who left Scotland for Northern Ireland before moving on to the New World. I'm Glenn Moyer. In a moment, we'll discuss the Ulster Scots, who they were, why they left Scotland, and much more with my guest, Matthew Warwick. Education Officer of the Discover Ulster Scott Center in an interview recorded live not long ago in Belfast, Northern Ireland. That's coming up here under the Tartan Sky. Water. It's the lifeblood of Scotland. Water gives us our unparalleled seafood and our iconic whisky. It shapes our magnificent scenery. In Scotland, 2020 is the year of coasts and waters, where a vast array of special events are on tap to celebrate more than 10,000 miles of coastline, our rivers and streams, and of course, our world-famous lochs. Whether you choose to go doon the water on a yacht or paddle steamer, explore a coastal castle ruins, or bag a Monroe to enjoy the view from high above the loch. History, heritage, and unmatched hospitality await you. When you visit Scotland in 2020, the year of coasts and waters. It's been estimated that as many as 27 million Americans can trace their lineage to the Scots people. A 2017 American Community Survey found that 5.4 million respondents claimed Scottish heritage, while another 3 million specifically identified as Scots-Irish or Scotch-Irish, indicating they are descendants of immigrants who originated in Scotland, migrated to the north of Ireland, primarily Ulster, and then later moved on to the New World, arriving primarily in Pennsylvania and spreading outward from there. I'm personally not a fan of the term Scotch-Irish, though it is an acceptable Americanism. Scotch, as a description of anything but whiskey, has been out of favor in the UK for about 200 years. People in Scotland refer to themselves as Scots or Scottish, but never Scotch. Most British historians to describe the ethnic group of lowland and borders Scots who migrated to Northern Ireland as part of the plantation scheme in the 1600s use the term Ulster Scots. But who were these Scots, and why did they leave their homes? Decades later, the Highland clearances would forcefully remove Scots from their homes in the Scottish Highlands, but this was not the case with the Ulster Scots. This past summer, I was fortunate to visit Northern Ireland in search of my own Ulster Scots ancestors. 
I've learned they were from the Ayrshire region of Scotland and are buried in a cathedral cemetery in Clogger, Northern Ireland, about an hour's drive out of Belfast. While in the city, I had the chance to visit the Ulster Scots Agency and the Discover Ulster Scots Center, set up by the Good Friday Agreement of 1998. The agency is tasked with promoting the Ulster Scots language and its attendant culture, that is, the cultural traditions the Scots settlers who came to Ulster in the 1600s brought with them. For example, Highland pipe bands and Highland dancing are vibrant examples of this Scottish culture still on display today in Northern Ireland, as is Presbyterian Church history and the Ulster Scots language, which, just like the Scots language, some argue is not a language at all, but merely a dialect. But that's another story for another time. The Discover Ulster Scots Center is a center for anyone, especially visitors such as myself from North America who are looking to learn a bit more about their Ulster Scots heritage. During my visit, I was fortunate to meet and spend some time with Matthew Warwick, Education Officer for the Ulster Scots Center, in my quest to learn more about my own ancestors, the Breckenridge family, who left lowland Scotland and now rest in peace in Clogger not far outside of Belfast. I've always found the best place to begin any story is, well, at the beginning. So I asked Matthew, just who were the Ulster Scots? The Ulster Scots, essentially, it's, it's a name that are given to um, people whose ancestors left the lowlands of Scotland. And we say lowlands of Scotland, we're generalizing. Um, so the, the area where Scotland met England, uh, the Lothians, uh, Dumfries and Galloway, up through Ayrshire, uh, through the Central Belt, uh, up into Stirlingshire, uh, the Kingdom of Fife, and then also quite considerable numbers from uh, Argyle as well. These people left uh, to come to Ulster in the early 1600s during the reign of King James the Sixth and First, uh, James Stuart, who inherited the crown of England from his, his mother's first cousin, Queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth I in 1603. His official plantation was instigated in around 1609-1610, but there were a few private uh, entrepreneurial plantations that led up to that the decade before that sort of provided, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, the, the, the background and a bridgehead for his uh, plantation to be a success. One of these was a settlement in the, the north of County Antrim by a Scot called Randall MacDonnell. He was descended from the MacDonalds, who were the lords of the Isles around Isla and the Mull of Kintyre. Mm -hmm. uh, they had been in County Antrim in Ulster since uh, more or less the, the last decade of the 1300s. Um, uh, they had some land in the glens of Antrim, but uh, Randall MacDonnell managed to secure uh, significant lands, about half the county, uh, in 1604-1605 from King James, what was called the route, uh, the area around Ballamoney, Bush Mills, uh, stretching as far as Bally Castle in the north of the county of Antrim uh, in this uh, deal. Uh, the, the Macdonalds had come to County Antrim more or less as Red Shank or Galaglass mercenaries. They were brought <laughs> in by the McQuillan clan, the, uh -huh. the, the native Gaelic Irish clan in County Antrim. The McQuillans were perpetually at war with their neighbours, the O'Cahans or the O'Keans, uh, around Limavady uh, in, in what is now County Londerry. And, and also uh, the McQuillans also fought with the O'Neills uh, of South Antrim and Clandyboy. So they brought in some Scottish muscle. 
uh, of the McDonald's, but the McDonald's realised that their employers had lots of nice castles and nice lands, so they sort of usurped them. And within sort of three or four generations of being brought in as hired muscle, uh, Randall McDonald became um, the, the Earl of Antrim, and the McDonald's still hold that title today. Hmm. Uh, Hector McDonald is uh, the Earl of Antrim 400 years later after his ancestor Randall first secured that title. Uh, so King James extended Randall McDonald's lands uh, and around 1604-1605 on the provision that Randall McDonald settled them with lowland Scots settlers, so largely Protestant Presbyterian lowland Scots. This was quite unusual. Randall McDonald himself was a practising Catholic he had his own private chapel in his home at Dunluce Castle, which is now a, a major tourist attraction on the north coast here. Uh, if uh, any of your listeners watched the, the, the British Open uh, that was from Royal Portrush earlier in the summer, they would have uh, saw the backdrop of Dunluce Castle. The, the, the course is known as the Dunluce Links. It's only uh -huh. uh, less than a couple of miles away. The, the castle itself was also used on the... The cover, I think, of was Led Zeppelin Four. Uh, there's a, the, the, <laughs> okay. uh, a, a, a strange sort of uh, image of the castle was used on an album cover there. So it's known throughout the world, although people don't maybe realise where it is. But anyway, Randall MacDonald uh, fulfilled his obligation to King James and brought over these lowland Scots settlers to settle around uh, from Bally Castle, around Bush Mills, around uh, Dunluce Castle. There was a, a plantation era town, grew up around the castle, which has completely disappeared now. Uh, there's been a recent archaeological dig uh, looking at the remains of the street and the foundations of the building. And at one time it was a substantial settlement. And also uh, down to places like Ballymoney, uh, Clough Mills, Armoy and County Antrim, lots of Scots come into that area. And if you go there today uh, and knock on anybody's door, the, the likelihood you'll, you'll find a surname like Campbell, Stuart, Murray, Boyd, uh, <coughs> Madol, uh, Greer, uh, McGregor, etc, etc. Uh -huh. McIntyre, those names came in in the early uh, 1600s and they're still their descendants are still living in that yeah. area today. The people wow. have a, a very pronounced Scottish accent. They use a lot of Scots vocabulary, words and phrases in their everyday speech. And they, they still observe an awful lot of Scottish uh, traditions. So is that then the beginning of what we now know, what is called the Ulster Plantation? Well, that, that's so to see. That was the first little foray. Uh, uh, the, the next year, in May 1606, two Ayrshire landowners called Sir James Hamilton and Sir Hugh Montgomery managed to sec secure lands more or less from the south of County Antrim, from the, the River Bannock tomb, right across through what is now Belfast into North Down in the Ards Peninsula. Uh, this came through a private sort of deal with the local landowner who was called Con O'Neill. Con O'Neill had found himself uh, in a precarious sit situation. He had been uh, fighting with the, the governor of Carrick Fergus, who was a, an Englishman by the name of Sir Arthur Chichester. Carrick Fergus was the largest town in Ulster at this time, around the medieval castle, uh, and there was a, a medieval walled town there as well. It was the, the sort of the English administrative capital of Ulster. Uh -huh. and that's where the armed forces were based as well. Um, Chichester uh, had been trying to convince Con O'Neill to develop his trade with the English and 
uh, to build larger urban settlements. Belfast at this time was a tiny village of maybe less than 20 houses. It was a complete insignificance wow. to the, the big metropolitan city it is today. But Con O'Neill had refused uh, some of his uh, servants, his, his people, his tenants, actually engaged in a little pitched battle uh, with uh, Crown Forces at uh, Christmas 1602. Uh, and it was all over uh, a carry-out of alcohol. They wanted to, they were celebrating Christmas and they ran out of booze <laughs> and they procured this drink from a, a merchant in Belfast, but it was maybe not, it was maybe by ill-gotten gain. Um, the, uh, they ran into a, a troop from the garrison at Carrickfergus Castle and a melee, or a, a good Scots word, a stramash, mm. broke out and at least one of the English soldiers died. Uh, this gave Arthur Chichester the chance he was looking for. He arrested uh, Con O'Neill for levying war against the Crown, put him under house arrest in Carrickfergus Castle, and he was to go on trial for treason. Luckily for Con O'Neill, in the spring of 1603, Queen Elizabeth I, the highest authority in the land, died. And uh, because he was a major landowner, he was the head of the Clandy Boy O'Neills, who had uh, come into uh, North Down and the south of County Antrim uh, whenever uh, the, the the, largely the Anglo-Normans pulled out after the, the Edward Bruce invasion of 1315. Uh, he was waiting to go on trial to be heard by Queen Elizabeth I. She inconveniently, or maybe conveniently, died in this interim period. So he sent his wife over to Scotland when he found out that uh, James VI, James Stuart, was going to become the King of England as well. She uh, went to Scotland to find someone who had influence over this new king and she fell in with this man called Hugh Montgomery, who's a, an interesting character from Ayrshire. He was a bit of a, a, an adventurer. Uh, he travelled across Europe fighting duels with people who uh, disagreed with him. He had been an experienced Scottish soldier fighting in the continent with different Scottish regiments. And uh, he was always on the lookout for a get-rich-quick scheme. So he promises Conan his wife, yes, I'll secure your husband's release from Carrickfergus Castle on the proviso that he grants me some of his land, some of mm. his estates uh, in, in Ulster. So the deal is done. Hugh Montgomery sends over some of his servants to Carrickfergus, posing as rich Scottish nobles overlooking for a beautiful Irish Colleen to take for a wife. It just so happens that this, this servant, also by the name of Montgomery, uh, the, the woman that he felt head over heels in love with at first sight was uh, just happened to be the jailer of Carrickfergus Castle's daughter. What a coincidence. <laughs> really? What are the odds? They get married in Carrickfergus and sometime during the celebrations, the legend has it that uh, two big wheels of cheese were smuggled into Carrickfergus Castle for the attention of Con O'Neill. Secreted within these cheeses were ropes and in the middle of the night, Con O'Neill abseiled down the battlements of Carrickfergus Castle into a rowing boat. He was whisked across <laughs> Carrickfergus Bay, uh, which now is called Belfast Loch. Uh, and he hid within the, the grounds of Bangor Abbey, a significant church, uh, on the other side of the loch for a day and a half until a, a suitable boat was found to take them across to Ayrshire. Whenever they got to Ayrshire, uh, they had a, a jolly old time. They had a good knees up, uh, a, a couple of days in the drink. Con O'Neill was fond of the, the soup, as we would say. He liked to, to take a wee dram. Mm. Uh, and eventually they headed to uh, London to go and see... Uh, King James to ratify this this arrangement. Uh, in my personal opinion, I think Hugh Montgomery put the cart before the horse. He sprang the man from jail and then went to ask for the pardon. I think I'd rather have asked for the pardon mm -hmm. first and gained yeah. you know a lawful release. 
However, en route to London, one of King James's sort of spy masters found out about this deal, and his name was James Hamilton, and he's one of King James's privy councillors. He had previously been uh, a don at Trinity College Dublin, a bursar, uh, sort of a bookkeeper, an accountant of the college in Dublin. What he really was doing, he was spying for King James on the English administration in Dublin at this time. So he had a great network of informants. He found out what Hugh Montgomery, his local rival from Ayrshire, was planning with Con O'Neill. He went ahead to King James, informed him of what was happening, and muscled his way on the deal. King James ratifies this deal that Con O'Neill gives a third of his lands to Hugh Montgomery, but also a third of the lands to James Hamilton. Mm, okay. So this, this happens. It's very successful. They're industrious uh, planters. They send over uh, lots of tenants from their estates in Ayrshire and Dumfries and Galloway. And that we reckon, uh, and they come into North Down and start, uh, they really uh, invigorate the very small settlements of Ards and Bangor and make them into prominent market towns with uh, uh, a good, uh, you know, uh, bi-monthly or, or sorry, two every, every two week markets. Uh, there's growing urban development, uh, so they develop the size of these towns, uh, and it's very, very successful. Uh, a lot of the land in North Down is very, very good. Uh, arable land for growing crops around uh, Strangford Loch, it's famous today. There's a village called Cumber, it's, it's received European states for the quality of its potatoes. The ground is very, very good. But a lot of this ground had lain fallow up until this point for mm. 30 years because of the fighting between the Irish and the English here. So as soon as they had their first harvest, news got back from Donaghadee to Port Patrick uh, in Galloway. Ulster was the land of milk and honey. Good land for cheap rent. And we reckon that between the, the Randall MacDonald settlement in North Antrim and the Hamilton Montgomery settlement in North Down, the Ards and South Antrim, somewhere in the region of 10,000 Scots come into Ulster around 1604 right through to 1609. Very, very successful. And this provides King James with inspiration for his official plantation of Ulster after the flight of the Earls in 1607. Okay. Why the interest in bringing lowland Scots? Was it a, a geographical thing? Because Ayrshire is just... Yeah. across the sea. I, mean, yes. very, I, I did the crossing myself by ferry, yeah. so geographically it's very close. Was was it because of their farming heritage there? Um, well, geographic there, 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 or there, maybe all of those several things? Factors. Originally, uh, the, the original plantation, King James wanted uh, an equal mixture of Scots and English coming here. He thought his new Scottish subjects, or he thought, sorry, pardon me, he thought his new English subjects were very sophisticated, very well-read, civilised, uh, uh, but he knew his own people whose Scots were a, a tougher, hardier breed. Argu mm. uh, they were from arguably a less settled society uh -huh. where uh, particularly from around towards the borders, people would still protect their, their lands and their properties and everything else uh, from border reavers and other elements. Um, so th they would make good planters. They were good frontiersmen. Um, as you said, the crossing but between the Ards Peninsula or Island McGeehan County Antrim across to the Mull of Galloway is somewhere around 20 miles. Uh, between the Mull of Kintyre and Torhead and County Antrim is just over 12 miles, so it's a very narrow band of sea. Yeah. The Scots didn't have far to travel. The Scots were also used to the geography of the land here, the pastoral grazing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, good for cattle, for sheep, 
they were used to the weather, they were used to the soil types, and also if they didn't like it, they had only a, f a short five hour sailing if the weather was fair <laughs> back across. They, they, they were within eye shot, they could see right, the shore right. of home. Um, so all these things culminate in the Scots coming into Ulster in huge numbers. We reckon that between 1600 and the uh, sorry, between 1600 and about 1700 that that century, somewhere in the region of 200,000 people leave lowland wow. Scotland to come to Ulster to live. And and modern, modern, theoretically in search of a better life. Uh, land well, ec honey. economic migrants, yeah, largely. Yeah. Uh, in the second half of the, the 17th century, some of them could also arguably be religious migrants, uh, Presbyterians, uh, during the, the, the times of the, the Covenanters, uh, uh, you know, and their, their grievances and their disputes with Charles II and latterly James II. Uh, a lot of them sought refuge in Ulster because it was seen as an extension of Scotland itself. They ah. had family connections there, mm -hmm. it was across the sea, it was a wee bit farther away. Um, uh, historians estimate people like R.G. Hunter and Percival Maxwell, uh, sorry, R.J. Hunter and Percival Maxwell, estimate that the population of nine counties of Ulster around about 1600 may have been somewhere as low as 25 to 40,000 because of all the violence between the, the English army and the native Gaelic Irish, uh, also cold winters, famine, uh, crop failures. So if the native Irish population was as low as 25,000 people, 200,000 Scots coming in over a day, over, over a century has a huge, huge sure. impact. Yeah. And, and uh, in different parts of Ulster here, if you look at the names of businesses, if you go into any cemetery or graveyard, you see Scots names, and, and particularly in Antrim and Down, dominating, you know, being the majority of society here. That has, that has uh, maintained and that has, that has continued. So those people who deem themselves to be Ulster Scots today are descendants of those Scots. Okay. They, they have the names. Uh, they have the maybe the Presbyterian faith, although not exclusively. Many, right. many Ulster Scots uh, chose to worship within the, the the Church of Ireland, and then laterally into Methodism and Baptism and, and, and different Reformed denominations as well. And then, of course, uh, I'm stereotyping. Not all of the settlers coming to Ulster at this time were Protestant at all, particularly in the west of the province, uh, around the, the the plantation town of Strabane and up to Londonderry. And that the, the area that was given to the Hamiltons, who later became the, the Earls of Abercorn. Um, uh, many of their settlers from Scotland at this time were Roman Catholic, because that's, they were Roman Catholics themselves, and, and their, their tenants were as well. So, you know, you have Ulster Scots names, you have Scottish names and cultural traditions and language in that part of Ulster, but uh, they maybe don't have the Presbyterian faith. So right. it's not just black and white, it's, it's, it's a much more complex issue. So what I'm hearing is, you're essentially convincing me of what I already thought I knew, I suppose, is that I'm probably a classic Ulster Scot. My ancestry is a gentleman named Alexander Breckenridge, who was from Ballantrae, mm -hmm. um, eventually ended up here with his son Michael and his wife, and then it's his grandson, also Alexander Breckenridge, who left from here and went to the United States, moving into Philadelphia in the, in the 17, I think 1738. Mm -hmm. um, I know the Breckenridges were from um, South Ayrshire um, in the, the 
early to 16, mid 1600s probably. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure when they may have come across here. And, and, and as you said, when we first started talking, I'm a typical, I guess, North American. And part of the reason I'm here is to try and see what I can find about my family history. Those ancestors I just mentioned that came from Scotland are, uh, according to genealogical research that my uh, cousin has done, are buried in a cathedral in Clogger, which is just um, not far from here, not far from Belfast, I understand. No, it's about an hour's drive. Yeah. An hour's drive, there's a, one of our few motorways goes heads down that direction. <laughs> the, the, the Clogger Valley is interesting. It was originally earmarked and set out for English settlement at the time of the plantation. Ah. It was given to English um, landlords or English undertakers to develop, but they found it quite hard to populate with English settlers and... Uh, you know, they relied on Scots coming in to to, to fill up the gaps, uh, and and uh, it, it's it's maybe just not as Ulster Scots as parts of Antrim and Down on the very close the coastal fringe, mm -hmm. close right. to Scotland. Yeah. But there's certainly uh, there's all those indicators. There's pipe bands. There's Scottish surnames. Uh, and there's Presbyterian churches, actually, yeah. where you find those three things, you find lots of Ulster yeah. Scots. Well, and I, I didn't mention, but I was uh, actually ba baptized in, in the Presbyterian church. My father was a dean in uh, a Presbyterian church when I was a child. And, and I don't know if they settled in Clogger, or mm -hmm. I, I don't know that part of the riddle now. I know they came, as I say, they went from Ballantrae up to Redalvin and then to, uh, and, and obviously ended their lives here in, in uh, not here in Belfast, but in Clogger. But, um, but I don't know where, particularly in the, if they were in fact a part of the Ulster Plantation, which one would assume they were. I'm not sure where they might have been yes. settled and lived. I haven't well, found that information well, yet. You know, the, 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 the first decade of the 1600s is, is the, the, the start of that sort of movement of, large scale movement of Scots into Ulster, but it continued right up into the early 1700s. Right. For instance, 1696, as a significant year, as the century went on, records were better. Um, so we, we maybe know a little bit more uh, factual of history and documentation. But uh, in 1696, there was a series of sort of harvest failures, a small famine in Scotland, and many, many Scots sought refuge in Ulster. We reckon somewhere in the region of 20,000 in that year alone came across the sea wow. uh, here to Ulster. So it wasn't just confined to the first decade. Uh, it continued right through into the early 1700s. But then we have the other inverse in that the early 1700s, many of those Ulster Scots here who maybe were second, third, fourth generation mm -hmm. uh, here decided that there were better opportunities for them in the new world. Yeah. Um, and, and largely due to things like the Test Act where Presbyterians had maybe got a little bit too big for their boots in the corporations of Belfast and Londonderry, according to Queen Anne, who introduced the, the, the test acts. Uh, the test acts were, if you could not swear an oath uh, of loyalty, recognising the monarch as the head of the church and the head of the state, you weren't deemed fit for office. So this was anathema to the, the Presbyterian Ulster Scots because they did not want any state interference in the church. Right. The Presbyterian church, as you know, uh, governed from the ground up by right. presbyters, wise men, elderly men, elders, etc., etc. Um, so they they refused. Um, there's a there's a plaque up in First Derry Presbyterian Church up within the walls of the the city of Londonderry, and it lists the names of uh, the elders of and representatives of that church who resigned from the corporation 
of the city of Londonderry because of this test act. Um, uh, and then from sort of 1718, again, there was a, an, econo- a, an economic slump here. Uh, there were poor harvests. Uh, landlords passed their shortcomings in agricultural production onto their tenants with increased rents. Uh, and uh, it was a pretty uh, poor time financially for, for many ordinary tenant farmers. Um, and seventeen eighteen, you have the, the Reverend uh, James McGregor from Akadui Presbyterian Church in County Londonderry decides to, to fill five ships with people from his congregation in the wider uh, Lower Ban area. And it's called the Five Ships Migration and they set sail for uh, Boston. They had previously petitioned Governor Shute, the Governor of New England, to see how well would they be received in the New mm-hmm. World. Uh, whenever they got to Boston, they found out that the, the Puritan English maybe weren't as keen on their religious views and the welcome wasn't as warm as what they first thought. They had a tough uh, winter. Some of them overwintered in the boat in a harbour that was that, that was frozen in. Other people were out in the, the outland countryside. But from uh, the spring of sort of 1719, they, they made their own settlement at a place called Nutfield that they very swiftly renamed Londonderry, New Hampshire. And you have a Londonderry, New Hampshire, and a Derry, New Hampshire, all very close to each other. Uh-huh. And, and this was largely under the guidance of this Reverend James McGregor and then uh, his congregation. And uh, it started the, the Presbyterian Church and, and churches in the area. And it was like a, a tap being turned on. There was a constant wave then of migration uh, from... Uh, Ulster right through the the 18th century. Um, you talked about your own ancestor coming in around 1738, 1739. Yeah, 1738, around. I believe. That, yes. That's around about the time that uh, a, a, a young boy called Charles Thompson uh, left uh, the, the town of Macaran, County Londonderry. Um, his father died in the voyage uh, across the Atlantic, which I think may have taken anywhere up to maybe 12 or 13 weeks, depending on the weather back then on the sailing ships. Wow. Uh, he arrived as a penniless orphan in Philadelphia and uh, was brought up a, uh, as a, a ward by uh, the Presbyterian Church by a blacksmith. Uh, uh, he rose to prominence, got a good, good, uh, a, a good education, became a, a, a very advanced legal mind and he was secretary of the Continental Congress and one of the founding fathers, uh, Jefferson's right hand man and, and, and indeed he is the man who in whose handwriting the original Declaration uh-huh. of Independence is. He also designed the presidential seal of the United States of America that you can see emblazoned on the side of Air Force One and on the card yeah. of the Oval Office. Yeah. So, you know, that time we have so many coming in. I think there's there's three Ulster born men in the original signatories of the Declaration of Independence. I think you're right. Uh, and I think there's maybe 15 or 16 men of Ulster descent who signed it. And then, of course, the first person to to print it and dis- distribute it was John Dunlap, the Dunlap Broadside, and he was brought up in Straban, very mm. much Ulster Scott uh, in West Tyrone. So it's a very, very common story. Uh, and again, the magic number is around 200,000, 250,000, leaving Ulster from maybe the, the 1717, 1718, right through to the Irish potato famine. So, um, and un- unlike the, the post-famine migration where the Irish-Americans largely stayed around the coastal fringes of Boston, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Baltimore and New York, 
the Ulster Scots had itchy feet. They were frontiers people, and they wanted to see what was over the horizon and over the next mountain. And they are, they're original Americans. Yeah. Well, I know I was just reading recently where uh, I'm uh, a native Texan, and the contribution, I don't know, I've not researched enough to know if they were Ulster Scots or or just Scots, but I, I know, for example, there were four men uh, at the Alamo that fell there that were, in fact, from Scotland, and that there are estimates that as many as estimates anywhere from 40% to almost 80% were uh, of the, the defenders of the Alamo in Texas were of Scottish descent and, and had Scott and and I think it was something like I think the term is 40 percent of the original band of settlers who came to Texas with Stephen F. Austin were Scottish yes. or of Scott descent. So yeah. there's a tremendous I've done a lot of research and, and found a lot of interesting facts and, and I see things in a number of different ways where I draw similarities to Texans, my Texas roots, and my Scottish ancestry. Yeah. I, I find comparisons there um, all the time, and uh, and it's interesting to see because the, the Scots had a tremendous, well, certainly a tremendous impact on the entire United States, but in particular, they did have a great impact, even though they're not necessarily seen as really as, as a big group in Texas. They're, most people look at the Scots' influence in the USA, and they look more along the East Coast, yeah. but Certainly, they, there is a significant contribution that Scots made to, to the state of Texas in its origins. Certainly, well, we can't really go past Sam Houston in that respect. Sam Houston, and, and exactly. Of course, the, 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 the Houstons and the Houstons from uh, Ballyboley or uh, in County Antrim. Well, uh, uh, and uh, the first year I visited, my first trip to Scotland, I was staying in uh, uh, just near the village of Old Kilpatrick, and just across the Clyde is Houston. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so a habitational name that, that that came here, and and we have so many habitational or locational Scots names here in Ulster. Uh, came in at the time of the plantation names like, uh, sort of coming up. Um, we include Carlisle in that Carlisle, Moffat, uh, Borland, uh, Girvan, Galloway, Paisley, uh, Stirling, Irvine. Dundee, yeah. uh, uh, it's it's a Glasgow. These these are common surnames uh, here in Ulster and remain to this day. And, and Houston is is, yeah. is is one of those as well. And Kilpatrick and Kirkpatrick right, uh, right. are very prominent surnames here yeah. as well. So um, it's it's not a, it's not an unusual story. Um, but uh, no, it, it what interests me is. You know the the term Scots Irish I find interesting. Um, I I I like that I find it quite amusing uh, that Barack Obama and his uh, at the was it the the Democratic uh, Party conference or Congress I'm not the, sure the right terminology maybe the National Convention probably but yes just before his the end of his term of office he was said that he was proud of his. Scots Irish ancestry and it instilled in him growing up in Kansas, you know, a work ethic and a set of values he was very proud right. of. But I, I don't think he has any Scots Irish blood in the true sense of the world. I think word I think he meant it as being either Scottish or Irish in heritage, not the definition of Scots who came to the New World by way of Ireland. Right. You know, largely what we call Ulster Scots here. Yeah. But if he wants to define himself as an Ulster Scot, I'm not going to argue with him, you know. I've really embraced my heritage as being Scottish and no offense intended, but I look at it as my ancestry to the point that we've traced it so far. They began in Scotland 
They came to Ireland, and then from Ireland they went to the New World. And so, yes, I am a classic Ulster Scot or Scot-Irish, but they had to start somewhere, and, and they, well, they started as Scottish to me. Well, well that's, we, we that's not to, to, no, no, no. to dismiss that I have some Irish heritage well, by we, any means. We, we, have a, we used to have a little strap line that we used in some of our promotional material here, and it was mined in Scotland, forged in Ulster, and ah. exported worldwide. <laughs> uh, and I, 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 like think, that. I think that little phrase sums up uh, the people in the mentality uh, quite well. Um, but... Uh, no, the, the centre here, the Discover Ulster Scott Centre, we have a little gallery called the Montgomery Gallery. And it was opened uh, in July uh, 2018 by the outgoing US Consul General for Belfast, Dan Loughton. Uh, Belfast has the second oldest US consulate in the world. Uh, another little uh, piece of trivia for you. Uh, and it, it looks at significant people and events in American history that have been influenced by Ulster Scots or Scots Irish. Mm -hmm. So we have the list of 20 presidents that I'm not going to go over that people I'm sure are, yeah. are very aware of, but there's other figures there too, like um, the man who designed and made uh, Abraham Lincoln's stovepipe hat, the Knox Hat Company. He was born in a, really? little, he was born in a little Presbyterian village of Remilton in County Donegal, uh, <laughs> of <laughs> Presbyterian descent. The man who designed or invented the, the dollar sign uh, a man called Pollock from uh, West Tyrone, uh, who, who I think it was Oliver Pollock. Uh, I, I think he was a significant player in the the, uh, the, the revolutionary wars. Uh, he he bankrolled the revolutionary wars, and and I think in today's standard, probably to the tune of billions, and sunk his whole entire fortune into it. He had a a, a very a very lucrative. Uh, uh, mercantile business dealing and and this that and the other, but he is the guy that is accredited with inventing the the dollar sign. It was a sort of uh, mutated version of the Spanish peso sign, and and that's what he used in around New Orleans. Uh -huh. So there, it's, there, there's we've got lots of little nuggets of information yeah. like that 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 people might not know. Also, um, uh, there's a little picture of the the Oscar winning actor Leonardo DiCaprio, not claiming him to be an Ulster Scot, but he won his Oscar <laughs> for playing. Hugh Glass, right, or, or the character that is a historical rep or, or representation of Hugh Glass. Uh, what's the film called now? Uh, it'll come to me in a wee minute. Uh, the one where he's mauled by a bear up in the the Klondike or the Yukon or oh, everything else. Uh, the revenge film. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um. We'll, we'll get it in a minute, and you can come yeah. to it in the editorial. We'll, yeah, we can, we'll add that in. So, and so, edit. so you know, yeah. he he was you know, on Ulster Scott in the background and everything else. So there, there are lots of characters who may not deemed as being the presidents or the Sam Houstons or the, the Davy Crockett's or whatever. Right, right. But also, you know, have made an impact on sure. their Sure, yeah. So you said early on um, that um, a lot of what the agency does is people like myself who come from North America that are interested in their family history, trying to trace their roots. What types of resources are available um, for, for example, one of my listeners who perhaps wants to, knows they have their history, their heritage is Scott-Irish, they may be an Ulster Scott, and they want to research that further. What types of resources are available to them here and through the agency? Well, um, here uh, on the, the Discover Ulster Scott Centre, uh, we have a genealogist genealogist that works here called Deirdre Spear-White uh, and Deirdre can help people 
uh, find their way and navigate through the various historical records that there are. Our, unfortunately, a lot of our uh, paper records were destroyed in Dublin uh, in 1922 in the, in the Irish Civil War. Mm. Um, the, they, were, they were in a big building called the Four Courts, which was seen as being a sort of symbol of uh, English imperialism. So uh, it was occupied and then it was burnt as a result of shelling and everything else. And in the days before digitalization and copying, an awful lot of original records disappeared. Sure, yeah. So um, we do have uh, a significant number of records that have survived. They're housed across Belfast in the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland. Uh, and they have a, a fantastic state-of-the-art building where visitors to Belfast can come and uh, if, if they have information such as uh, a name, a date and a, a place of origin, so maybe a, a church or a townland or a, a county, we can cross-reference that with various records that survive. Okay. Um, also, uh, there are other organisations uh, in Belfast. There's there's one based in the same building called the Ulster Historical Foundation, who have who are the experts sort of in North American uh, genealogical research and tying it in with Ulster. And they were originally the the Ulster Scots Historical Foundation, uh, so they're very aware of the Scots Irish link, and they've been doing that for in around forty fifty years. And uh, that's a pay per play organisation, but that can save so much time because they know exactly where to go they've been doing it for a long time they uh -huh. have all the shortcuts right. and here in the center we have lots of pr printed resources telling the story the narrative of you know people coming from scotland to ulster and then also from scotland to america and to different states and the influence they had there as well yeah is the ulster scots community still a very viable uh, active recognized community here in the area today? Yes, it is. It is because um, largely through church communities, Presbyterian church communities, uh -huh. because you find that the same families belong to the same kirk that they have belonged to for three or four hundred years. My, my own church was, was established in 1660. So it's 300 and what's that? 359 years uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a long long time and you find the same Scots families marrying into the same Scots families in the same area so the names have remained in the same area tied working to the same land uh, the same Lowland Scots language so you know you're going for a wee dander in Belfast today the Wellers Drich it would founder ye uh, I'm absolutely scunnered with a weather. <laughs> you know, all these wee Scots phrases survive yeah. in our everyday parlance. In some areas, they are much more um, condensed and, uh, and uh, you've used an awful lot more. Uh, for example, you, you may hear bits and pieces of vocabulary used in the city centre here in Belfast, but if you go out to rural County Antrim, North Down, the Ards Peninsula, West Tyrone, East Donegal, you'll find those words used in a much higher frequency because that's where the people moved to and that's mm -hmm. where they have stayed yeah. and they have continued to use in their, their daily interaction. Interesting, interesting. For a, a person from North America who wanted to begin researching their, uh, they may have some idea that they're Scot-Irish. Um, is there a particular benefit to beginning with the, uh, the Ulster Scot community? Well, it, it's, it's interesting. We do get lots of visitors here. Belfast is 
Belfast's main industry now is tourism, mm-hmm. um, and today I don't know if you, you saw there's a there's a cruise ship in. Yeah, I was told there are a couple of cruise ships yeah, in today. Yeah, so we, we have we have at least what you know. Usually most weeks we have two or three different cruise ships, and six seven thousand people disembark for at least a day in Belfast. Now some of them head off to the the big tourist draws off the the County Antrim coastline, Dunluce Castle, Carrick, or Reed, the Giant's Causeway. But some of them remain in Belfast. They visit the Titanic exhibition and they, they have a little walk. Just came from there. Just came from there. They yeah. have a little walk through uh, the city, go to places like the Cromwell Road Jail. But we find that there are some who are interested in their ancestry and their heritage and they have looked us up online and they come and visit us to have a little chat and, and see if we can find uh, anything out or inform them anything about their, their ancestry. Um, Northern Ireland is a very small place. Um, you know, they talk about six degrees of separation. I would say in Northern Ireland, most people are separated from somebody else by only two or three degrees. Really? We have a, a small population of 1.8 million people. But here here in the Discover Ulster Scots Centre, we've got a sort of geographically diverse staff. So if there's a family name in a, in a county somewhere, nine times out of ten, we may know someone of that surname from that uh-huh. area. So yeah. we're able to signpost people and put them in touch with local enthusiasts who may be able to help them with their research. Yeah. So if we don't know the answers, we like to point them in the right direction of the yeah. people that do. And and it's nice to give that, that local dimension. Um, the Ireland, and particularly Ulster, has remained. So the, the town land system is, is interesting. I, I don't know what the equivalent would be in America maybe local county lines or, or, or whatever, but we, we have townlands here which are small. Uh, a townland could be anything from several hundred acres up to several thousand acres, uh, and they have peculiar names largely derived from Irish. Some of them will be uh, derived from Scots, and, and Scots nicknames given to different locations uh, in the early 1600s. But if that appears in somebody's family history on the side of the Atlantic, they may have been able to find nothing out about that on the internet, on the World Wide Web. But if you come here to Ulster, uh, we, we can find it on a map. We can give you the, the, the grid reference number or the coordinates. You can go and find it. You can go and have a drive around. Or we can point you to different little things in that area uh, that may be of interest or significance. Yeah. To try and paint a picture of what life was like here when people left, of... Um, you know, there's we we have certainly lots of churches and a few towns that haven't changed an awful lot in yeah. in, in, in three hundred years. So it, it's it can help paint a picture of what it was like before those ancestors left to go to the new world and, and just to, to fill in a few pieces in the jigsaw. Um finding out origins of places then in Scotland to come to Ulster is a wee bit harder. The records aren't uh, uh, that widespread yeah. um, and and really the easiest way to do it is to look at some of the, the 17th century sources like the 1630 muster rules every landlord had to uh, take a census of the men, the British settlers between the age of 16 and 60, the age to bear arms in case they needed to be called into militia. Uh-huh. Uh, so you can find these, largely these estates in the different counties and a list of the settlers and the majority of them are Scots and you can find out where they're at. You can then cross-reference that with the the, the hearth tax rules, uh, so uh, sort of house tax uh, from the, the 1660s and find where the surname is still there if there are more people with that surname 
and and then there there are other yeah, 18th century sort of census substitutes as well that, that that still survive. So it's another good Ulster Scots word. It's just about having a wee hook through <laughs> through the records and, and yeah. seeing what you can find and trying to join up the dots that way. My thanks to my guest, Matthew Warwick of the Discover Ulster Scots Centre in Belfast, Northern Ireland, for sharing his extensive knowledge of the Ulster Scots, both then and now. A few days after I left Northern Ireland for England, having first visited the cemetery of my ancestors' final resting place, I received an email from the Centre's genealogist with information about another ancestor, George Breckenridge. He built a three-story mausoleum monument to himself that was vandalized by American soldiers in World War II. It's only a few miles from the cemetery I visited, so now I have reason to make a return trip to Northern Ireland. And by the way, the movie for which Leonardo DiCaprio won his Best Acting Oscar for his portrayal of Ulster Scott Hugh Glass, well, that was The Revenant. For more on the Ulster Scots, please see our show notes on the website at www.underthetartansky.scot for some helpful links. Next time, we stay in Northern Ireland, and I'll introduce you to a member of the Ulster Scots community today, Rab Lennox, host of The Big Rab Show. It's a radio show and a companion podcast all about bagpiping. Until then, I'm Glenn Moyer. Top of eight, I guess, Alapakabra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. Have an idea for a future episode? Well, get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol. Tartan Sky. And thank you for listening. <laughs>